All right, y'all. Turn to Matthew chapter 8. This is the last sermon in our scripture series. So the scripture series is coming to an end. And those who are counting realize this is four, not five. I'm doing five down in Panama City in May with the RUF summer conference down there. But we're doing four here. Why? Well, I'm doing two sermons that you've already heard. Are going to be the, we've heard three. We're going to use those three. But there's two that you've already heard that I'm going to take with me down there. You might remember Mary, the first great gospel theologian, John 12, 1 through 8. And we're going to look at that down there. That's going to be the word and the greatest barrier to hearing it. Then we're going to look at uh, Acts chapter 14, 19 to 23, and that's Paul stoning. And we'll look at the word and suffering. So the one we're looking at today is just for us. Just for us. It's what we need to hear. Here's what we're going to do. We've seen the power of the Word of God in Ezekiel 37, right? We've seen the attraction of the Word of God in Psalm 139. We've seen the purpose of the Word of God in Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. Unbelievable stuff, right? Are you with me? It is unbelievable stuff. I mean, when we were in Ezekiel 37, what do we do? We saw the power of God reaching us. Actually going into dead bones, reaching dead bones and making them alive. And what that was supposed to do to us was to to make us come alive in confidence that we can trust God and go to His Word and that the power of God is unleashed in His Word. The power isn't in you. It's not in your feelings. It's not in how spiritually well or not well you're doing right now. The power is in the Word so you can come confidently and increase your trust in Him being able to reach you no matter where you are, no matter what spiritual condition you're in, no matter where you feel lost or you feel found or where you're desperate or where you're delivered. And then we looked at the breathtaking beauty to attract us in Psalm 139. Remember that? And we saw that the the beauty and the attraction of the Word is of such that it draws us to the Word, not drags us to the Word. That the most beautiful way of interacting with God in the scriptures is being personally attracted and drawn to Him. Not, okay, I gotta do it. And we saw that the personal attraction of the Word is that it's of such a nature that it's not consisting of timeless, eternal, principles and ideas and abstraction but a personal God who's knowing you okay so we saw that and then we went to the purpose of the word and we saw clear direction to lead us to Jesus that that the attraction of the word the power of the word is actually Jesus himself and that the purpose of the word is to fix your eyes on Jesus himself And in fixing your eyes on Jesus himself, you actually find the life and light for your soul. And that when you come to the scriptures, you're actually coming to Jesus, the word of God. So whatever John 1 means when it says in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God and that word became flesh, whatever that means. It certainly means that inherent in the Old and New Testament, Jesus is that DNA. He is that word. 
So no matter how you look at the Old Testament or New Testament, it has to go to Jesus. He is the Word of God. Okay? All right. Here's what we need today. Here's what we need to do. We need to answer this question. But what about me? What about you? Is the power, is the attraction, is the purpose of the word for you or not? Because in the big global things, in the big power and wonder of the scriptures, the bottom line is, is he going to speak to me? Is he going to meet with me? Is he going to connect to me? Or is he going to pass me by? So, welcome to What About Me? Please stand for the hearing of God's word. All right, chapter 8, we're going to look at 1 through 4. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Now, I'm not going to touch on that last verse, but I need to tell you what it means so that you feel good. Otherwise, you're going to be walking out of here. He didn't touch that last verse. Was he scared of it? No, I'm not scared of it. What it's saying is that, what's the law? Leprosy was equivalent to someone being dead. In order for a leper to be healed, it was like someone rising from the dead. It was something that everyone knew in that day could only happen if God did it. Direct intervention from God. No holy man can come in and do it. It has to be God doing it. So if God did heal leprosy, the leper was to go to the priest, show him he's healed, and they will take a thank offering and go, wow, God did it. All right, So that was to fulfill the law. But the twist on this is really fascinating. The twist on this is that, yes, Jesus did tell him to fulfill the law because Jesus is a law keeper, but not, not just that. What Matthew wants you to see is that he actually fulfills the law. What's the purpose of the law? Righteousness. Cleanliness. I mean, rightly connected to God. Healing. And so what happened was, by, by this person actually showing up and telling the priest, I've been healed, it actually shows that Jesus, the law keeper, is the law fulfiller too. Okay? The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Oh, Jesus, we thank you that you're with us. And we thank you that you are our substitute punishment and you are our substitute righteousness. So we're okay. I'm okay. Everyone here that knows you is okay. So, oh Lord, would you, surely, only on the basis of who you are and what you've done, would you now graciously give us all things? Would you give power to me? 
Would you give power to all of us to see and hear on the inside? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we've looked at some pretty strange passages, haven't we, for a scripture series? It's okay, you can nod your head. Yes, we have. Ezekiel 37, Psalm 139, Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, and now Matthew 8, 1 through 4. This guy's lost his mind. Yeah, it's probably true. But there is a matter, there is a method to this madness. I've wanted to give you the different buckets in Scripture that carry the water of divine revelation. In other words, Scripture comes in a literary form. God has united and married the literary form with the message. They're inseparable. You can't tear them apart. So to pay attention to the bucket that carries the water of the message is to pay attention to the Word of God. They're inseparable. They need each other. So we've looked at several buckets. I wanted you to see in Ezekiel 37 the visual bucket, visual revelation, because it, it was a bucket of vision. So we needed to see the power of God. Do you see that? I mean, I can sit here and I can propositionally tell you the Bible is the power of God. And that's good. And because the Holy Spirit's around it, for some of you, it's like, bam! Got it! Or, God could say, I'm going to take Ezekiel into a valley of dry bones. Ezekiel, can these bones live? Only you know, God. Preach. Preach my word. And I'll answer that question. See it, right? We went to Psalm 139 so that we could have experiential revelation. In other words, poetry is experience. We were to experience the attraction of the Word of God deeply. Then we went to the Hebrews 12 and we saw propositional revelation. And this is, this is God in the grammar stuff. This is grammatically driven, idea-driven revelation or buckets. And the purpose there is to give you great clarity, to set your mind to understand the purpose of the Word, to fix your mind and your heart on the end of the Word. Clearly, it's clear. It's about Jesus, okay? So what bucket is Matthew 8, 1 through 4? What is it? Technically, it's called historical narrative. We're going to call it story bucket. In the story bucket, when you've got a story, what do you got in a story? Well, you've got an interaction of a story of characters. You've got an interaction of historical people, and you've got an interaction of historical settings and places. They're important. It's like when, when we go to John 3 and it says, Nicodemus went to Jesus at night. That's good. That's good story stuff. He didn't go during the day. Why didn't he go during the day? Because he didn't want to be seen during the day, so he went at night. You see the story. You got the story with the people, you got the places, and then the, you got real life drama. And that's the plot line, the storyline. All the interaction of that is story, and its purpose is to do this it's a slice of relived life put on the page for you to see it. It's like this a slice of relived life right before your eyes. It's a you are there feel. What's meant to happen is you are to get lost in the story, and in getting lost in the story, you actually find yourself. That's the purpose of story. So narrative takes a slice of a life that's already been relived to take you in it so that you lose yourself in it 
and in the process find yourself. What a tremendous form. Now, the answer, because the answer is this. Why do you stay up late at night unable to put that book down? It's 3 a.m., you've got to get up in two hours, and you're still reading that book. Twilight ladies, you can fess up right now. <laughs> this might be a little much, too much information for some of you, but I'll say it anyway. I am not afraid to admit that I carried Harry Potter into the bathroom. <laughs> right? Okay, I have mine, you have yours. Great. Why do we do this? Why do we love stories? Why do we love movies? Why do we love sitting around the dinner table talking and telling and listening to stories? Why do we? Do you know? When our kids were young, there were a lot of stories told in our house. Usually around bedtime or Saturday morning after Spongebob. Actually, before Spongebob. Now, we still watch Spongebob. Sometimes, sadly, I'm the only one these days. In fact, my wife walked in this year, and she walked in, and she looked in the den, and then she had this weird look on her face, and she looked around the room, and then she said, Are you watching Spongebob by yourself? And I went, Oh! Patrick! Yes, I do. So we, on those once upon a time ago Saturday afternoons, here's what we would do. We would pile into bed. Everyone would be under the covers. And we tell stories about Bo and Baylor and Belovey and Buddy. And these are their personal little characters they slept with. So there usually be a story about them, right? And we talk about them. And then there was the evil rag mean muffin. And the evil rag mean muffin was this rat-like creature that had really long, sharp front teeth. And he lived in our chimney. And he came out at night. And after a couple of those stories, my wife says, you can't tell those at night anymore. Because at 3 a.m., we'd have screaming, (laughs) wildly flaying kids running to our bed, waking us up. And I still, to this day, honey, I don't know what the big deal was. Because when they came to my side of the bed, I just said, hey, go, go wake up your mom. We had stories about R.O.U.S.'s. Oh, yeah. Well, they didn't see Princess Bride at this time, so I made up the rodents of unusual size story. Now, this is crazy, y'all. They would be, we pretended they were under the bed, and I'd pull the covers open, and then I'd reach one hand out, and they would, the R.O.U.S.'s would attack. They're screaming like crazy. Now, many years ago, when they're redoing the zoo, do you know that part where the colorful tarps are? Do you remember that? Did you see? Well, here's what happened. I'm playing on the park, and I have one of the kids yell, Dad, the R.U.S.'s are over here. And we went over there, and sure enough, there was this big... <laughs> he looked like a rodent of a... He was about this big. And they're still there. All right, stories. Now, what do we do today? Well, I still tell stories. You know what stories they're asking me to tell now? Dad, tell the story about the alligator in the pond when you were swimming in it. What about the rattlesnake while you were fishing that barely, you barely got away from? Ah, tell tell us about Uncle Pete and that bully, please. (laughs) And other childhood adventures, right? Why do we love stories? You know what the answer is? We were made for them. You were made for story. You were made to get lost in the story of another. And so when we get to Matthew 8, 1 through 4, what we're going to do is we're going to get lost in another world. 
and in getting lost in another world, in the process, you're actually going to find yourself in this one. It's incredible. Because we're given slices of life that God had had already accomplished in history, but as we hear him told now, we actually enter into the story. And when we're in the story, we actually find ourselves in this place, in this time. It's an incredible bucket. So you ready to get lost in a story? Let's look at it. Let's start right at the beginning here. Jesus just finishes in chapters 5 through 7, the greatest sermon ever preached in the history of the world by any human being. He just finishes. Okay? And as he's finishing this great, great sermon, this is called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew is taking great pains to make us see that Jesus is like a Moses, but better. Because here we have Moses, remember? He also was on a mountain, and he received ten words from God, of the first five books probably of the Bible, with some little help from Joshua, right? Because he was dead after one of them. There was still one left, Deuteronomy. He received ten words from God, but here we have Jesus on the mountain as the word of God himself speaking. The other thing we have here is absolutely fascinating. Remember Moses, how many miracles did he perform? How many signs did he perform before he led the people out in the Exodus? How many? You remember? Come on, you gray hairs should know. Kids should know. Ten. You know what Matthew does in chapters 6 through 8? Gives us ten miracles, ten signs of the better Moses. But remember, the, Moses, the miracles that Moses did were indirect. Remember, he was an instrument, and he had a staff, and, and God worked through the instrument. But when Jesus performs these ten miracles, it's by his direct hand he does them. A better Moses. And he leads to a greater exodus, which is going to happen at the resurrection. You see what's happening here? So when we get to this picture, what you should be seeing is it looks like an exodus taking place. As Jesus is leading this crowd down the mountain. I mean, it's, it's global. It's epic. It's, you can't get everybody on the film. And then while we're picturing this great, grand moment, I mean, you can almost sense the energy in the air. Because these folks are eagerly expecting something. Something great's about to happen here. Everyone in the crowd sensing that. Because everyone in the crowd is getting the picture of a new Moses with a new exodus. And they're thinking it's from Rome. And just when that thought and that energy and that excitement is reaching its peak, what Matthew does is he bumps the camera and it's off the crowd and all of a sudden Golem's in the picture. And we're looking at a leper. It's like you've been looking at those beautiful, perfect elves Legolas, Arwen, and then the screen fills up with Golem. And this Golem-like creature knows he shouldn't be there. He knows that according to the law of Moses, a leper is cursed by God. A leper is defiled and unclean. And a leper should not be there. In fact... One rabbi said that if you are a hundred cubits downwind from a leper, you become unclean, just like the leper. hundred cubits is about 150 feet, which is about 50 yards, so half a football field. 
So imagine you got to kind of keep your distance 100, you know, 50 yards from a leper. This is why the religious leaders thought this way. They thought this way because the Old Testament law taught that unholiness and defilement and uncleanliness always ran downhill. It had an ugly power to it. So if you took something or someone who was clean and it came in contact with something or someone that was unclean, the power and the energy always went out from the unclean and it decreated and corrupted the clean. So nobody wanted to be around a leper. Because if you're around him, you become unclean. And so lepers in that society, what were they? They were, they were quarantined. They were quarantined from God. They were quarantined from society. They were quarantined from their own family. And so what ends up happening is you have folks here. This person is a never welcomed person. He's never taken in. He's never accepted. He's never home. He's always the stranger He's always stuck in Egypt. So you can imagine how he's feeling as he's approaching Jesus. You could probably imagine that he's, he's very fearful. He's probably wondering if he's going to be found out. He's probably wondering, do I have every part of my body covered that needs to be covered so I'm not found out? And I guarantee you, possibly, it's not said, so I can't guarantee it, but I'll insinuate it. I wonder if he's thinking this. I wonder how many people are within 150 yards of Jesus right now that I'm going to corrupt and be responsible for. And then Jesus was there. He's right in front of him. Now watch how he approaches Jesus, y'all. He approaches with boldness. Can you imagine? I mean, why is he even doing this? So there's a boldness to him. There's, There's a... There's some guts in there. It's boldness because he dared to come close to Jesus. He dared to come close to this new Moses. But he also doesn't just come boldly. Notice how he comes. He comes, he, he comes as a broken person. What does he do immediately when he gets there? He falls to his knees. He's bold, but he's broken. And then he says the words that reveal his soul. Look at verse 2. This is the... If you want to know... The soul of this man, it's in these words. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. If I was to give you my translation, it would be something like this. Lord, what about me? What about me? Will you notice me? Or will you pass me by? Now, whatever you do next, my friends... Do not miss what happens next. It should take your breath away. Jesus touches him. Man. You know, he could have just said it, which he does, but he actually reaches out and touches him. So he reaches out and he touches uncleanliness. He reaches out and he touches misery. He reaches out and he touches a stranger. He reaches out and touches the ostracized. He reaches out and touches him. And and at that point, game's on. At that point, everyone with an eyesight, everyone with the earshot knows who this guy is. And what do you think they did when he touches him? They all gasp. 
Because in their minds, now the new Moses just got corrupt. The new Moses just became defiled. And I wonder if the leper is shaking now. I mean, what a story, huh? That's an unbelievable story. What's the point of it all? You got characters, you got a setting, you got the characters. Who are the characters? Jesus, the leper, the crowds. You've got a setting just after the greatest sermon ever preached, the new Moses, the better Moses, the first of his many signs, his ten signs and ten miracles that he's going to show that he's the, the one that leads out into the Exodus. And then you got drama. You got the inside of a real person amidst this crowd who's wondering, what about me? And the answer is what? What about him? You see that? Well, here's the point. It's very straightforward, nothing flashy. Here it is. You ready? Jesus is able and willing to heal you. That's the point. Jesus is able and he's willing to heal you. Now, some of you are saying, but Jeff, how do you know Jesus is able? How do you know that? Okay, we're going to read that he's able. He says he's able. We see it happen. How do you know he's able? How do you know he's actually able to deal with my stuff? How is he able to deal with my chronic depression? How is he able to deal with an addiction to pornography? How is he able to heal my angry tongue? How is he able to heal my thought life? How is he able to heal my cold marriage? How is he able... I mean, we can go on and on, right? How is he able to heal my spiritual laziness? How is he able to... How is he able to heal anything of my stuff? How do you know that? How do you know that? Now, here's what I want you to see. What's at stake here in this passage? When Jesus touches the leper, here's what's at stake. Who will win? When Jesus touches the leper, what's at stake is, will, will uncleanliness and defilement come out of the leper towards Jesus and defile Jesus, corrupt Jesus, make Jesus unclean? Or will divine, divine power and healing and cleansing and transforming grace come out of Jesus and cleanse the uncleanliness? And recreate the corrupt and the chaotic. Do you see what's happening? That's what's at stake here. When he touches, who wins? Which way does it go? Which way does power go? Which way? Ugly power? Divine healing power. Which one wins? Well, we know. It's not even a contest, right? Look at verse 3. Very quickly. Be clean, and immediately the leprosy was cleansed. That's just, it's just an afterthought. Now, many of us, here's the point, I think, for us. Many of us in this room have forgotten that Jesus is able to heal you. I think we think that the power of our ugliness overrides his power towards us. I think we think that the power of my stuff at least just kind of blocks him from getting me. Maybe doesn't overdo it. Certainly doesn't make him unclean. But the power of my stuff, the power of my unhealthiness and uncleanness seems to at least make it a standstill. 
Don't we tend to think that way? I think, too, here's how we know. We, when we don't believe that Jesus is able to heal us, we don't go boldly to him. We don't dare to get close to him. So here's what we do. We never cry out to him. If we don't believe that he's able to heal us, we don't talk to him about our stuff. We just kind of keep our stuff to ourselves. We don't go to him to the scriptures and listen to him and, and seek his help in the scriptures. And we surely don't talk to other people about it because what? no one's able to do anything about it. I'm just kind of stuck. It's the way my marriage is always going to be. The way I talk is always the way I'm going to talk. The way I am and my anxiety and fears is always going to be that way. Just got to kind of adjust, just kind of cope, distract myself, try to find a hobby, you know. I heard this one time. I don't know why I'm saying this, but I'm going to say it because it's coming to my mind. I was listening to a, a tape that one of my favorite pastors was talking to other pastors, and this is what he said. He said, ultimately, what happens in ministry, you're going to reach everyone in ministry is going to get to their exhausted point. That's nice news, isn't it? It's a great thing to hear. I used to say, I got more gears than anyone in this room. That's the way I used to think. Do you see what's in there? Japers. Um, Now I understand that. But this is what he said. He says, if ultimately, if ultimately you come to me and tell me you need a vacation... Katie, bar the door. There's no hope for me. If that's the answer, sure, it might be part of it. But there needs to be a going daringly to come to Jesus in a very new and fresh way with your stuff at this time. And if you don't believe that he can, he's able to heal you, you don't go to him. You don't cry out to him. And also, look what happens when you don't go to him. If you forget that he's able to heal you, you don't go to him broken. Isn't it interesting that in the Sermon on the Mount, the very first thing Jesus says is this, blessed are the poor in spirit. That is the very first thing he says. Why? Because grace always runs downhill to the desperate. Grace always runs downhill to the needy. Grace always runs downhill to the humble. Grace always runs downhill to the helpless and the powerless. Always in God's economy. So blessed are you who are in the pit of darkness, who've got your stuff and you're realizing it. Blessed are you because grace always comes down to you. See that? Now what happens when we don't believe that he's able, we don't come to him broken. We're still trying to repair ourselves. Still trying to keep ourselves together. Still putting band-aids over M60 wounds. Right. All right. So Jesus is able to heal you, so do go to him. Go to him boldly and go to him in brokenness. Go to him. Now, the able part didn't seem to be a problem for the leper, did it? He got that part. What was, the, what was the part for him? If you're willing. And brothers and sisters, those of you that are in more, um, what should I say? 
Those of you that are in more like uh, theologically driven churches, let's say it that way, more focusing on God being in the center of everything, that kind of stuff, you get the able stuff. You get that, at least conceptually, at least in our ideas we get it, but what do we not get usually? Is he willing? What about me? What about me? Is he willing to heal me? Is he willing to save me? Is he willing to pay attention to me? Will he take notice of me? Will he draw near to me? Will he help me? Will he gladden my soul? Will he? That's the one that gets us. Now, this is what I want you to see. (laughs) The most stunning words uttered in this passage are, I will. Now, it's a little awkward, isn't it? It's a little awkward sentence. I will be clean. I mean, you've got to remember that he's saying, if you will, and then he plays off, if you will, and says, I will. But it's still a little awkward. I don't know if someone comes up to me and says, if you will, would you, uh, if you will, you are able to do this. I don't know if I would, my response or my sentence would be, I will. It would probably be, of course I'm willing to do this for you. Or I desire to do that. It would be a little more explanation. But I want you to see that the stunning part is not that Jesus says he will heal him or heal you. The I will is not the stunning part in terms of healing him. The I will is the stunning part because it resembles the words Jesus says later in the garden before he goes to the cross. And Matthew is begging you to see it. Because when Jesus is about ready to go to the cross, this is what he says there. He says, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. In other words, is there another way for me not to be banished and driven from your presence? Is there another way? Do I have to be the substitute punishment for sin? Is there another way? And then Jesus finishes it up by saying, nevertheless, not as here it is. I will, but as what? You will. Hmm. So what was Jesus, what was the answer? Was the Father willing to save Jesus from the cross? Was the Father willing to spare Jesus from the cross? And we know the answer to that, don't we? No. And then here's the the stunning part. Why? Because he was not willing to forget you. He was willing to blow his son literally to pieces with his wrath. Because he's not willing to do that to you. He's not willing to pass you by. He's not willing to leave you in your sin and your misery. He's not willing to leave you under divine justice and darkness and destruction forever and ever. He's not willing to. To do that. That's stunning. So when you think of, what about me? He answers that. And he answers that with the greatest proof he could ever give to you. He proves it for you. I am willing. Because I wasn't willing for my son. 
So God is willing to heal you. He proves it in the willingness at the cross. This means all barriers to him are now gone. So you can. Let's go back and revisit. You can boldly go to him now. There is a boldness, not just because he's able, but there's now a boldness because he's willing. Flip it around. Those of you that were kids at one time. I know some of you have never been a kid. You're usually your firstborn. Carrying the weight of the world from day one. I understand that. All right. That's why I have you guys to help me have fun. I have a wife that likes to have fun. I have children that like to have fun. I don't know how to have fun. I'm learning. All right. But those of you that remember that fun stuff, if you're going to ask your parent for something, how willing are you to go to him when you know he or she's not willing? I can see the difference in the way my kids come to me and the way they go to my wife (laughs) on certain things and probably vice versa, I hope. You know that. So if God is willing to heal you, what does that mean? You boldly go to him. You boldly cry out to him. You boldly bring your stuff into the light. You boldly talk to him about your stuff. You boldly come to him brokenly saying, "I I can't do this. I am helpless. I am powerless. Here it is. You boldly do that. and You boldly go to the scriptures because you say you dare to go to him. You want to hear what he has to say. You want to listen to him. You ask for help. You look for him. Just like the leper. He was looking for Jesus. You see that? He, ex- he expected to find Jesus. When you read the scriptures, how do you read the scriptures? Do you read the scriptures looking for Jesus? Or do you read the scriptures looking for some principle you're going to apply to your life? Well, you can, you can live on the octane of principles for, I don't know, a couple years. Then you get a new one, and that takes you another couple years. Then you get a new one, and that takes you another couple years. But eventually, you're going to run out of gas. Or you read the scriptures to find Jesus. You never run out of gas. You may think you are, but you don't. All right. You can go to him broken because when you know he's willing, you know that grace is going to run downhill to you now. There's one other thing I want to say, and that's this. There's one other way. If Jesus is able and he's willing to heal you, there's another way you need to go to him. And what's that way? With hope. Expectantly. Hope in him to heal you. What's hope? Hope is, hope is looking for something to happen that you don't have now. Expecting him to act is expecting him to do something that's not present now. So when you hope in him in your desperation, your helplessness with all your stuff, you're looking for him to do something that's not yet present in your life. That's another way we can go to him. The reason why we can do this is because this. I think it's easy for us to get trapped in a victim mentality. This is what happens to us. I do it. You do it. If you say you didn't do it, you're a liar. This is what happens. We get in this victim mentality where we actually think we're just being dragged around by some big, giant spiritual troll. And he yanks the chain, and oh, man. And that's kind of the way we live our life. The big troll, yeah, he's, he's, he's got me. And so we think that we're a helpless victim to psychological drives. We think we're a helpless victim to the way we were raised by our parents. We think we're a helpless victim to the abuse of others. 
We think we're a helpless victim to people's expectations of us. We think we're a helpless victim to the situations and circumstances in our lives. The big troll just dragging us along. We need to see that there is no good news in thinking you're a helpless victim. There's no good news there. And in fact, that's a self-imposed prison. And you will never get out if you have that kind of a mentality. And we do this all the time. You know what the good news is? You're going to think I'm crazy. The good news is not that you're a helpless victim. The good news is you're a sinner. Oh, great, Jeff. That's really good news. You know why that's good news? You're not a helpless victim. You do anger. You're not a helpless victim. You do lust. You're not a helpless victim. You do critical thinking and criticisms and biting tongues. You're not a helpless victim. You do this stuff. You're not a helpless victim. You do unforgiveness. You're not a helpless victim. You do hate. You're not a helpless victim. You do this stuff. Now, here's where the hope comes in. If you're a sinner, the cross is just for you. It's perfect. I lied to you a little bit earlier. Remember what I said? Who will win? You know, will the corruption come into Jesus and beat him? Or will his divine power come and defeat and cleanse the corruption? I lied just a little bit because when Jesus did touch the leper or when he touched the leper in one sense, not in and of himself did he become unclean and defiled, but as a substitute he did. In other words, when Jesus touches you, he takes your uncleanliness. He takes your defilement. He takes your sin. He takes the brokenness that sin happens. He takes the the ravages of it. He takes the misery of it. He transfers it onto himself, and he bore the full measure of it on the cross. That's why Peter says, listen, by his wounds you're healed. Because if the transfer is taking place, your sin, your misery, your yuck, your stuff is now transferred to him, and he gives grace going downhill to the needy. Unbelievable, brothers and sisters. So the hope and the expectation is this. You got your stuff. I've got my stuff. But here's the great news. He carried it on the cross. All of it. And the stuff I'm wrestling with right now was carried on the cross. So now I can deal with it. With hope that he's going to continue to touch me and cleanse me and heal me. You're not a victim. Victor Hugo, didn't he write Lay Miserables? <laughs> Did he? Okay, thank you, Caitlin. Got some friends out there. Now, Victor Hugo said, There are moments when whatever the posture of the body, the soul is on its knees. Whatever the posture of the body, the soul is on its knees. There are moments when that's true. Matthew 8 is one of those moments. Because Jesus is willing and because he's able to heal you, go to him on your knees. Amen.